HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today, I have uh, a really cool guest, uh, Jeff Spazito. Jeff is the president and CEO of Stone Glacier, as well as a member on the board of directors for 2% for Conservation. And in this conversation, um, I kind of allude to it uh, when we first kind of kicked things off, but Instead of talking about uh, Stone Glacier and, you know, kind of focusing on that aspect um, of 2% and of conservation in general, um, what I wanted to do was really kind of find out about Jeff, his past, um, you know, what the outdoors looked like to him, you know, how he found himself uh, in the position that he's in now, uh, and... For a lot of people out there, kind of, you know, maybe outside of the um, the small world that is kind of 2% and some of the businesses and everything that are affiliated, um, you know, Jeff played a very integral role in starting 2% for Conservation. Um, you know, Jeff grew up as a cattle rancher in California and you know, that was, it was a family business and that was kind of the plan. Um, that's what he went to college for. That's what he was going to do with his life. And then, um, you know, I think like a lot of us, um, sometimes life has a different plan and he was offered a position with, at the time, a small startup company, uh, named Sitka. And he got in, um, you know, when they were still very small, Um, and had this vision and this idea to go about, um, you know, hunting uh, apparel in a kind of a completely different way. And he talks about, you know, his journey there, um, transitioning um, to 2% or excuse me, transitioning to Stone Glacier, what that looked like, you know, how with his time at Sitka and, you know, the idea behind 2% for conservation, um, you know, really what it took to get 2% off the ground, what the vision was, uh, you know, really how that has evolved um, over the course of the last, you know, five and a half, almost six years here. Um, and uh, it's really an incredible story. Um, I think, you know, someone like Jeff, um, you know, he he just has such a cool story that, you know, I don't know how many people really know it. So I'm, I'm really glad that, that him and I got a chance to sit down and he got to kind of tell me, you know, about that, what it looked like, you know, what's, you know, in store for, for him, uh, for Stone Glacier, obviously some big changes coming there and how conservation really continues to be the driving force, um, in a lot of this. So 
really awesome, awesome episode, one that I really enjoyed. Uh, episode 89, Jeff Spazito. Uh, before that, I want to tell you about our friends, Marshall and Sammy. Marshall and Sammy are the owners of Wild Rivers Coffee. And at Wild Rivers Coffee, they are roasting in small batches so that they can ensure that their coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers Coffee is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe in preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why, with everything you purchase from their website, portions of the proceeds are going to be donated directly back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. You're going to get uh, groups like Trout Unlimited, Backcountry Hunters and Angler, Ducks Unlimited, and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Not only that, head over to Wild Rivers Coffee, excuse me, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. Over there you can get, uh, as I mentioned, your fresh roasted beans, uh, super cool handmade mugs, uh, some sweet merch, uh, a ton of different accessories for grinding and brewing your own coffee, uh, really everything uh, that you need, uh, you can get it right there at wildriverscoffeeco.com. Uh, sign up today, subscribe today, uh, save 10% off your orders, or you just want to try it, you want to grab a bag of coffee, you want to pick up one of their cool shirts or a mug or something, use the promo code all caps fish underscore wildlife and you're going to save 15% off your order. So a great chance to give it a try. I have been drinking it for well over the last year. It's awesome coffee. Um, I promise you, you will not be disappointed uh, in your choice. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. All right. Joining me on the podcast today, I have the president and CEO of 2% Certified Stone Glacier, as well as a member on the board of directors for 2% for Conservation, Mr. Jeff Spazito. Jeff, how are you? Doing well. How are you today? I'm good. I, uh, I kind of mentioned it before we started recording, but I know you guys are right in the middle of like show season uh, and everything like that, so you probably have a ton going on, so I'm glad that we're able to, uh, to make some time. I know this is, has been a little bit in the making here. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm glad we finally carved out some time, too. Yeah. So this is going to seem a bit repetitive to you because I just, we, we just talked about it, but you know, normally, um, and this is a little bit different because you obviously are the the president, uh, and CEO at Stone Glacier, but we've had Lyle, Lyle on, uh, to talk about Stone Glacier in a bit more detail. So today really what I want to do is, um, you know, kind of talk about your journey, um, and the role that conservation has played in your life, um, you know, some of the different businesses that you've worked in and, and how uh, important conservation has really been in those. So we're, it's really going to be kind of a, I don't know if expose is the right word, but you know, more of like a, a profile kind of thing. And uh, to really kind of kick that off, what I want to do is kind of go all the way back to the beginning and you know what was your first real experience to the outdoors like what what introduced you to it yeah um well i i was fortunate to grow up in uh you know uh, I, I would call an outdoor family maybe a casual outdoor family compared to others but but really an agricultural ranching family which which led to lots of opportunities uh that were unique to to experience the outdoors just from access to, to land and, and the work environment so my my uh my grandfather's father actually started a, a cattle ranch in, in Northern California, in the Bay Area, and, and everybody in my family, generations to come, have, have all worked for the family business. Uh, my generation is is uh, one of the only ones that started to branch out, and I think I'm one of the few in my family that actually doesn't make a full-time career in, in ranching still. But but that was... Um, that, you know, gave me early access to hunting and fishing and generally, you know, being outdoors and and just the work of, of running a cattle ranch. So um, I feel very fortunate for all, all that early exposure, but from an early age, it was, um, you know, that was always part of, part of my life. So what's it like growing up, you know, on a cattle ranch? Because I have, I mean, I'm in the Midwest here, so a lot of dairy farms. Uh, so I had uh, some family friends who owned a dairy farm and, you know, when I would like crash at their house for the weekend or something like that. And, you know, the, the, my buddy that, that I was staying with, I mean, he had chores he had to do, you know, aside, you know, especially on the weekends. So I've definitely spent a little bit of time, um, on dairy farms, which I think is obviously a little bit different, but what was it like, you know, growing up when, I mean, that's, um, that's a very demanding job, right? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Well, my yeah, my situation maybe is a, is a little bit more uh, specialized or unique too because um, you know we um, our family's ranch was at a unique time and a unique period in in California. So in Northern California and the Bay Area, obviously a very populated place. You know when my family originally settled there and, and began ranching, it, it probably looked very different than when I was growing up. Um, but uh, I guess my point being is is that later, you know, early in my life, and, and yes, I spent a lot of time on the ranch, but at a certain point in time, my mom and I moved to town, um, as did, you know, my grandfather's house was originally where my mom raised, it was originally built in the middle of the ranch, and uh, it developed around it. So by the time I was I was alive, there was a full subdivision around the house. So so our, our dynamics and our family's business were, were changing and evolving, and uh, you know, we were leasing ground in different places, and but uh, that didn't necessarily change the workload. Uh, to allude to your question, and, and just the family dynamics, but but it is a unique situation in that I grew up in a populated area as as one of you know me and my two cousins, the only agricultural family type kids at the entire high school, if you will, which is kind of funny because it was in an urban area. It's one of these situations where you know you drive. Um, I think you see it in lots of big cities. There's still agriculture around that's kind of hidden, you know, which right. is always interesting to me. But you drive down the end of a cul-de-sac in a subdivision to get to a gate to go ship cattle, right? So, <laughs> so kind of a funny, a funny dynamic like that, which I think is, is pretty intriguing to me. And, it, and it's becoming more and more prominent. But it definitely wasn't a situation um, like a lot of uh, my other friends and people I went to college with in, in agriculture where, um, you're, you live in a small little town and, and it's a rural area and you got to drive, you know, 50 miles to, to go to school, or the grocery store. So it's a little bit different from that standpoint. You literally just described my upbringing right there. That la- those are your like last four <laughs> sentences. Like that's, that's how I grew up in a very, uh, rural community. Kind of your, um, when you think about like farming or agriculture, yep. it's, uh, it was very, um, uh, I guess what you would what you would think of when when thinking of yeah. farming. Yeah, but... and we we had you know two of my you know my family as as I kind of alluded to as you know development started encroaching. We uh, my grandpa kind of pivoted and and uh, started running cattle in different parts of the state. So I have uh, three of my cousins that were all similar age to me. My uncle took his family and they moved up to Northern California by Mount Shasta area, a little south of the Oregon border. Um, and started running that that operation of the ranch, and that was very much uh, very much what we're talking about—the traditional agriculture in the middle of nowhere, small town. So it's it's interesting to see as we both grew up, my cousins and I, and in, in, in similar um, I don't know similar parental career path environments or whatever, if you will, the our, our situations were very different. <laughs> yeah. So when did you know? I guess that that was you didn't want that to be kind of your your path, you know, out of high school, out of college and, 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 you know, as you got older. Well, actually I did, I, I did, that was, uh, I, I did want that to be my path. It was kind of all I knew. I went to college and was an agriculture business major. Um, through college I worked for on the family ranch. Um, I graduated with a degree in ag business. I went and did uh, some work in Texas for a feedlot, road pins at, at a large, scale commercial uh, cattle feeding operation and um, and really just circumstantially life life kind of happened I got married we had our first kid really young and and needed to get get a job and, and the career path opportunities that presented itself to me um, had a higher ceiling or and a more immediate impact financially which was important to us at the time in outside of agriculture um, so we just just made a choice that I felt was best for my family uh, at the time, and, and that led me down a path that, that wasn't in the agriculture industry. Now, it wasn't a hard choice because I was, I was very fortunate and lucky and fell into uh, one of those first opportunities being uh, working at Sika Gear right when it was started. So uh, being a hunter, that was also very intriguing to me. So it wasn't a, a letdown by any means, but but circumstantially, not necessarily what I had planned. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of funny how circumstances arise. Uh, you know, we, we make decisions. Um, you know, for the betterment of our family uh, and kind of the, you know, financially the big, you know, you start looking a little bit more big picture, especially after that first kid comes right when you have more than just maybe yourself to take care of. And to to 
as a hunter, um, as an outdoorsman to, to find yourself in that position, in that position. I mean, that's, that's something that, I mean, I, I don't know of an outdoorsman that wouldn't want, um, to fall into uh, a situation like that working for, um, you know, what's now, you know, one of the larger, um, known names in the hunting industry. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it was, it was, uh, it was very fortunate looking back on it. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, whether you believe in luck or not, um, sometimes in life you, you know, my dad always used to say it's better to be lucky than good, but, but that was a, that was a good circumstance. And, you know, I remember, I think one of the, one of the, uh, feedlot operations that, that I had worked for, uh, offered me a full-time job around the same time, um, graduating college at, you know, that early stage of life on the same time that the sick opportunity came my way and, and the starting pay was $12 an hour, you know, so it was kind of eye opening to, to say, you know, I just graduated college and, and this is, <laughs> this is the opportunity, which, <laughs> which is kind of agriculture. It is what it is. I mean, you don't do it um, because you're gonna get rich, you do it for the lifestyle. But, but those were, those were interesting life choices and decisions to, to be made. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'd imagine to anyone who gets into uh, or, you know, finds themselves on the path to make the outdoors a career, like that's also kind of a lifestyle too, right? Like, I mean, the perks that come Absolutely. with, with working for, um, you know, someone in the outdoor industry, whether it's, you know, just, um, you know, getting to, to go on some cool hunts, meeting some really cool like-minded people. I mean, there's certainly, uh, some benefits to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And this isn't necessarily the industry that you go into to get rich either. Right. <laughs> you right. could do, you could do a very comparable job to what all of us in the outdoor industry do and, and maybe a different industry. I don't know what, you know, whatever, pick one oil gas or something that much, that could be much more lucrative, but, but it's a lifestyle, not, not much different than agriculture. And, and it's because, you know, most individuals that, that you work with are passionate and, and that's what makes it fun to work, work in, you know, you, you uh, have common ground with a lot of your competitors and coworkers and, and it's really a big family and, and it's a small industry. Yeah. So you wind up at Sitka and I mean, you said, uh, you said yourself that you were there, uh, in the very early, early stages of Sitka, kind of before it was Sitka, right? Before it was what everyone knows it as today. So what was that like? You know, did you know that you were onto something good there, that the company itself was, you know, kind of on the brink of, you know, what we see today? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. You know, things, things evolve and change so quickly. It's, it's interesting to kind of look back in retrospect at, and think about things that way. You know, honestly, at the time I, um, at the time living it, I, I felt like we were, we were already the cat's meow. We were already doing great things and, <laughs> and we were, and we were, uh, you know, um, leading in the industry, but, but no, absolutely. We were a small company, a startup and, and there was a lot of risk and unknowns. And at the time we were doing something relatively unique that, that hadn't necessarily been done in out in the hunting space and, you know, in the outdoor space, much, much more common. Um, but, but at the time I, I felt like we were just hitting the ground running and, and, uh, just doing the best we could to grow, grow a fast growing business. Um, but, but you're right. Looking back at it now, it was, you know, it was the good old early days and, and we had a lot, a lot to prove and, um, a lot to achieve and a lot of opportunities to, to fail as well. Yeah. Well, it's correct me if I'm wrong. When, when you, when you mentioned that you were kind of on the cutting edge of things and, and doing things differently than they had always been done, which I feel like in business is like kind of the, the stamp of death is when you, when someone asks you, you know, why are we doing it this way? And the response is, cause that's the way we've always done it. Right. There's, <laughs> I, I, I feel like that's, that's kind of the, the way to get nowhere very fast, you know, especially everything around us is, is constantly evolving. But what you guys were doing essentially was taking more of, um, um, like a, uh, a climbing alpinist, um, style, uh, or approach to the gear as opposed to, you know, the cotton and, and things like that, that you've, that you had always seen prior to that. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily a, a revolutionary business model in the scope of, of outdoor businesses, but, but in the hunting space, it was, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, at that time there was a lot of people saying that hunters won't pay $400 for a jacket or, you know, $600 for a backpack. Um, and I, and I don't mean to undermine that those aren't 
expensive prices. But but that was the sentiment then, right? The hunting companies made uh, arguably lower quality, more price point sensitive products, historically speaking. And and there is a success in a very parallel market in outdoor where companies like Mountain Hardware and Arcteryx and you name it were we're making more technical, more innovative, higher-end products that, um, and they're proving success, right? So it was essentially taking, taking that, you know, and, and applying it to, um, to hunting, um, and, and that was really what was what was risky because it just hadn't been done in the hunting space, and it was just unknown if there was that appetite amongst the hunting consumer for, for this type of product and this type of product innovation. Yeah, and I think you know. <clears throat> As as time goes on, I think that obviously you guys were you know kind of the first or when you, your time at Sika, um, you know Sika obviously being the first company to to really kind of dive into that. And now it's almost like anything; it's kind of a copycat world where everyone's trying to do you know something very similar, putting their own twist on it, their own spin on it. Um, and it's you know when I look at buying hunting gear um, or anything like that, it's it's almost like I, I don't even consider the old stuff, right? Because they're the, the value add for, you know, something that's much more technical, um, you know, whether it's, you know, having a wind blocker or using Merino, which, you know, isn't a new product Merino, but the, the application um, is, is, is new, I guess, to some degree, but it's, uh, it's really amazing to see really how the whole industry uh, has shifted towards wanting that more high-end apparel, um, that more technically advanced gear um, than, you know, maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, no, I agree. And, and there's definitely, you know, there's always a space for, for different levels, right? And, and even in outdoor space, not, not everybody can justify or, or is interested in, in, in buying an Arcteryx jacket when they can when they could buy something that's sold at Costco that might serve them the same purpose. So it's, it's definitely um, dependent on consumer demographics and who you are and what you're trying to do. But generally speaking, you know, consumer behavior, people, people want the best. And especially if it's something that they're passionate about, like hunters are about hunting, if it's going to help, help them improve their experience and be more comfortable or, or be more successful, however they define that um, people are willing to spend money for it. Um, And I think you see that across any any industry um so yeah it, it's it, it's a pretty interesting thing i and i believe now that the hunting companies if you look at the scope of them and the breadth of them and, and we're only talking about you know 10 15 years um since it has started i think they're leading the way in innovation um amongst outdoor rec companies i think you see hunting companies uh coming out with uh more technical more innovative products and, and really uh, that pendulum has kind of swung which is pretty cool yeah, and I'm uh, kind of you know to to tie a bow on uh, on kind of that whole gear um, subject is I'm a firm believer in you get what you pay for right, and if you're going to pay for the high you know if you want um, you know the the best stuff like you're you're going to pay for it it's going to come at a premium in terms of cost but you're also you're not going to have to replace it in two years you know it's not going to wear out you're not going right. to get cold after you know two hours or if you're hiking back in you know especially when you look at more of the, the Western style hunting and more of the, you know, hiking back in and, you know, putting your camp on your back. I mean, you don't want to wear, you know, what I think about what I wore when I first started hunting, like, you know, your traditional, like waffle style long johns, right? Like that's, I mean, that for the longest time, that's what I knew them at is just long johns, right? And now it's like, oh, they're base right, layers right. and things like that. Like just the whole terminology has changed with the way we talk about things. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I don't know that a lot of people maybe outside of kind of the, the tight knit um, kind of outdoor conservation space um, is that 2% for conservation started um, while you were at Sitka. Um, so tell me about the role that you played in that and really kind of how the whole idea for 2% for conservation really came about. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, you're right. I I, um, I kind of constru- you know constructed the idea for two percent uh, while I was still employed at Sitka, and it was it was a side project that that was outside of of my commitment at Sitka and outside of the business, but it was very intertwined because um, I felt strongly and and the team at Sitka felt strongly in the concept and 
and to launch it and get it off the ground, we needed Sika support. Um, so, so it really did become a, a Sika project at a certain point. But, but really, you know, one of my uh, one of my jobs at a certain point in time along my career path at Sika was working with nonprofit organizations. Um, in the sense that it, it was kind of twofold, but in the sense that there's uh, there's a sales channel, really selfishly, there's economic, there's a sales channel available in, in, within nonprofits and that they're purchasing products to sell at all their fundraisers um, to raise money uh, to support their, their mission statements, right? So one of the things I did was, was develop relationships and I was kind of taxed with um, developing those relationships with conservation groups and understanding how we could support them and understand, and, and then the trade-off understanding where the opportunities were to, to sell sick a product through their channels. One, because uh, obviously revenue Two, it's, it's good exposure, right? I mean, um, from us, from a strategic standpoint, it was, Hey, if we can get a sick of jacket uh, on display at every RMEF banquet across the country, that's just that much more exposure to X number of eyeballs that we may not have gotten exposure to before. At the same time, you're helping a, uh, an organization raise money um, that, that in the bottom line is, is so they can do their mission work. So anyway, that that through that whole process, I learned a lot about the ins and outs of nonprofits in, in our space, conservation organizations in our space, and how they operate, what makes them successful, where their pain points and challenges are. Um, also, you know, we, from a business, we're looking at how do we leverage our commitment to conservation and what we're doing from a, from a marketing standpoint. We felt that customers would value that. You know, we truly had a, an internal passion and desire and willingness to help conservation groups be successful because we believed that their mission work was going to, in the long term, impact hunting and fishing uh, and uh, us personally and our kids and our kids and and wildlife habitats and, and all the all the things that we're aware of. So, you know, long story short, all these kind of puzzle pieces came together and I felt like there was a way where we could help drive more fundraising opportunities to conservation groups. And I also felt like it was underserved the the level of credit that um, for profit businesses were getting in their in their attempt or uh, help at funding conservation groups. So the concept really with 2% for conservation was let's, <clears throat> let's create a, a model or a mechanism where, where we can help uh, encourage businesses to, to make a commitment at a deeper level with conservation groups um, to help them raise money. And at the same time, um, let's help build a model that will leverage and, and create this, uh, this awareness or this marketing platform for businesses who really are committed to conservation to, to really reap the rewards of that, um, without as value. So, the, so those were kind of the, the two fundamental points that we tried to kick around and, and really were, were important to me to try to solve. And, and eventually 2% as, as the mechanism is, is what we landed on. And, and I think it's not, you know, it's not much different than what you see across every industry in that, um, businesses become certified for doing certain things, right? We see it a lot right now. It's really trendy with like environmental right. um, carbon footprint type stuff, right? Whether it's like a lead certification or a green business certification or um, anything of that sort where you have a third party that's going to say this business is going above and beyond to support X cause. Um, and that's fundamentally what, what we set out to attempt to, to create. Now, how long did it take from really the kind of when you first started getting the ball rolling, when you first had the idea behind 2%, you know, before you really knew what it was ultimately going to be? I mean, how long was that process before you guys officially launched as, you know, a nonprofit as 2% for conservation? Oh man, I'd have to go back to look to give you a solid number, but it was a, it was probably two years in the background, at, yeah. at least a year and a half that in the background that that I was kind of doing working on this on nights and weekends and, and putting together a strategy and business plan and and reaching out to people for advice and having conversations with with nonprofit groups about what do you think about this, how would this help you, and and kind of building it out. And you know, <laughs> funny, I'm not sure it's it's much well known, but we actually we didn't really. Um, Maybe you can use the term soft launch, but we originally kind of came to market as 1% for conservation. Um, 
And, uh, and in hindsight, it's one of these things that, that you look back and you're like, well, that was for the better, but, but I'm <laughs> for sure. And I don't mean to get too much in the weeds, but, but once percent for conservation, there's another, there's another organization that's very successful that exists that that's called, uh, 1% for the planet. Yep. Um, long story short, our, our first model didn't look and what we were trying to achieve looks very, very different than 1% for the planet than, than 2% of conservation does today. Um, but as we kind of put all the puzzle pieces together and then we did some research and studied 1% of the planet, and how they worked, that made a lot of sense to us and, and it, it checked all the boxes. Um, so that was the path we went down. We actually ended up and and they were great to work with. I don't, I don't mean this in any negative connotation, but 1% for the planet had, uh, has a trademark registration on, on their name and they did not, uh, they weren't comfortable with us using the name 1% for conservation. Um, and, and being that it was so similar, there is, there is a claim to be made for, for trademark infringement. Right. That was a, that was kind of a hiccup for us in, <laughs> in the whole process. Right. And, and that was slightly frustrating because here we are just trying to do something good. This isn't a for-profit business. I wasn't trying to steal anybody's customers or, right, or right. confuse, confuse anything. But, um, but that made us go back to the drawing board and, and look at, okay, what do we brand this thing as? How do we name it? And, and one of the underlying components that we've always talked about, and that was feedback that we received from conservation groups was that money isn't the hardest thing for them to get. Obviously it's important and they work very hard at it, but the, the number one consistent feedback across all the conservation groups that I sought advice from was that volunteer time was the harder uh, thing for them to get and the bigger struggle for them. And that's when we, when we, the concept came to us to layer in uh, this commitment, the 1% uh, of volunteer time commitment from the businesses, not only, you know, commit a certain standard of financial support, but, but a volunteer support. Um, and that turned into the new naming convention and, and evolved the business model to, to what really is a much better and more effective uh, business model. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's, that's crazy that you almost like the, not that you almost, cause I don't think you guys would have, you know, stopped what you were doing, but the fact that there was, you know, the, the entire business model originally was, was laid out or the plan and, you, not that you had to scrap it, but you had to rework the entire thing because of a naming issue, right? I mean, it's always funny how, how little <laughs> things like that um, are kind of the speed bumps or, you know, the hiccups along the way that, you know, don't necessarily derail it. Um, but in this particular case, like, you know, transformed it really to, to what we see today. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I still have a, I just moved recently and I found a whole box of marketing collateral with the original logo and naming convention and, and stuff on it. And I, I kept it for, um, for sentimental reasons, but it was kind of funny to look back at it. And, and I think that's, that's kind of, I mean, that's how life goes, right? I mean, you have unanticipated speed bumps in the road and the choices you make around them and how you handle them really shape uh, what the outcome in the future is going to be. And, and typically in, in business, from my experience, a lot of those frustrating at the time bumps in the road, really drive you down a better path and a better process. And, and this definitely was one of those examples where the model got stronger because of it um, and more effective. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 am, I absolutely agree with that, that especially in business, when, when something seems to completely go wrong, um, you know, what's on the other side of that is usually um, a lot, uh, it, you're a lot better off um, in that, in the, you know, whatever that next thing is. Um, but with 2%, you know, obviously when, when you guys started this and the idea, it seems like was kind of more related to, or maybe it wasn't, but, you know, maybe kind of geared more towards like outdoor brands or brands that kind of operated, you know, even if it was just peripherally um, in that space, did you ever think when you got it off the ground, the amount of businesses that are, you know, really in no way, shape or form related to the outdoors would become, you know, business members of 2%. Yeah, no, that, that's been a, a very cool um, evolution of the model. We did have, we did have that kind of concept on paper, if you will, of, of I think at the time we kind of labeled them non-endemic businesses and, and we believed there was a big opportunity there, but we didn't really know how it was going to be received or what it, what it would look like. Um, but it, but it makes perfect sense. And, and it's super cool to see in that 
um, that it could be anything, right? If, if the ownership is passionate about conservation and, and they, that could be all it takes, right? The owner can be passionate about conservation, but then if you also have the, the other uh, side of, of that coin and that they believe their customers would value their commitment, then it's a win-win no matter what your business is. I mean, you could have a plumbing business, a, uh, a furniture business, a construction company. It, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, that, that, that drive to support a nonprofit that's doing work that you believe in um, is strong enough that, that people make that commitment. I think that's been one of the cooler things to see. Yeah, and what I really like about talking with a lot of these businesses is the the importance that they see in doing a lot of the, their volunteer work or the the financial um, side of things that, you know, when they're donating to organizations is a lot of these businesses are trying to keep it local. They're trying to support a yeah. lot of the things that are in their hometowns, in the areas where they recreate, where their customers likely yeah. recreate. And to see to see that importance of, you know, kind of taking care of home um, is, I think, is just the coolest thing. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's, that's a very good point to make is that this, this to, to be impactful and arguably it's more impactful, but it doesn't need to be the support of a national organization or a large known organization like the National Wild Turkey Foundation or Mule Deer Foundation, right? It could be a local, a local chapter. Um, and, and you arguably have more of a direct impact when you do so because you can go meet with those volunteers that are running that local chapter of whatever uh, NGO it is and, and say, hey, we want to support you. What do you need help with? Um, and, and here you go. And let's do it and do it together. And, uh, and that's pretty dang cool. Yeah. And I think also when you when you spend your time volunteering locally, um, you know, I think with with when we talk about like hunting buddies or fishing buddies, right, it's it's usually people you've grown up with or you have some type of kind of long term relationship with because, you know, I think of like a Western style hunting. Like if you're going to, you know, spend four days, five days a week in the backcountry with someone like you want to know that they are not going to, you know, after two days be like, oh, this is too hard or, you know, that, <laughs> that they're not going to pack it in essentially. Right. And when right. You, you're volunteering locally, you know, it just you just meet so many other cool, like minded people who have the same passions for things that likely have the same upbringing or the same you know, background um, in terms of the outdoors that you do. And, you know, I don't know how many stories I've heard of people who, you know, make lifelong friends out of goat surveys, you know, river cleanups, yep. trailhead cleanups, all these types of things. So the the ripple effect of volunteering and getting out with these, you know, other conservationists is is really kind of endless. Totally. No, that's a good point. Maybe there's a dating app spin off here too. I don't know. <laughs> well, let's talk about that <laughs> offline. <laughs> So, two uh, percent gets off the ground. When did you make uh, the move over to Stone Glacier? Yeah, um, yeah, kind of. Geez, I, I left Sitka and started working at Stone Glacier in 2016, towards the end of 2016. Um, and um, at that time, I'm trying to think timeline in my mind where two percent was kind of in its, in its evolutionary process there was a time period there where um and, and it was right around then because that's i obviously was getting very busy with um putting together a business strategy for stone glacier and and all the things that go on that and transition from from one professional position to another but um we kicked we literally kicked two percent off the ground and and just like as we started, it was running it as the nights and weekends kind of a hobby business, right? So, you know, work all day and sick and come home and which and is all conservation. Which is all conservation, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but uh it got to a point kind of around that transition where I had so much on my plate that that honestly things were falling through the cracks, right? And and it and I wasn't dedicating enough as much time to two percent as as I wished I could have and, and as it justified and needed. Um, and that was kind of around the time where, where I reached out to Jared um, and said, hey, here, here's an opportunity. Like we, we've kind of created this thing that I think has a lot of bandwidth. It could be really cool and impactful in our industry. And, and uh, we need somebody to just take the bull by the horns and, and see what, you know, run with it. Um, so that was all. I think that all kind of was in that 2015 to 2016 time frame. Yeah. I mean, as it relates to Jared, um, I don't know that 
that you guys could have made a better choice on someone to lead the charge for 2% because I mean, I, I remember before, or, you know, I have a small business that's 2% certified as well. And, you know, throughout the process of becoming certified, you know, I'd, I'd had a few conversations with Jared along the way. And then when this whole idea for the podcast got kicked off, um, I mean, I was very apprehensive because I, I know when I started my business, I was like, I remember telling like, you know, friends and family, I was like, the last thing I'm going to do is start a podcast. Like there's too many podcasts out there. Like I'm not going to be that guy. Right. And then it was kind of, you know, proposed to me, like, you know, what if you, you know, with the name of your company, the average conservationist and with 2%, like it, it's, you know, it's a very good, um, like partnership. Like, what do you think? And then Jared, you know, starts spitballing all these ideas. And I mean, you know, Jared, as well as anyone that just the passion and the, the energy that that's got, this guy has, I mean, after like two minutes, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. You know, even though I'd said, <laughs> and I swore up and down, I was not going to do it. And, you know, over a year and a half later, and it's, uh, <laughs> I'm very happy that I started it and the work that Jared and Calvin have done with 2% and how it has grown and the businesses that they've added and all the different, you know, the job board and the, you know, the, um, the committee program, which is, you know, adjusting a little bit, like it's all incredible to see where it's come in just, you know, five and a half years. Yeah, it's been, it's been really fun to launch and they've done a great job and yeah, you're absolutely right. Jared's passion and, uh, genuine, um, commitment and uh for conservation is, is second to none and that and that's absolutely what this organization needs so that's what it's all about it's about connecting people that that uh want to support and help to, to people who who want to do and, and are executing on, on mission work so it's been it's been great and uh man i still think there's so much opportunity ahead and it's it, we haven't even scratched the surface on on the potential the organization can have it's funny I'll, i want to hit back go back just a, a little bit to to your point about uh you know, the non-endemic businesses. And, and one thing that's been a little eye-opening to me through the process and, and slightly frustrating is that that those businesses seem more willing and quick to support and embrace the model than, than hunting and fishing businesses. Um, and I never expected that. And that's an interesting concept that, that we could debate and, and try to analyze why and where and how, but, um, but that's just an interesting thing that's kind of arise and evolved out of out of this process of, of pitching this to, to businesses and, and trying to um, trying to grow the the mission work, if you will. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I think Jared and I have talked about uh, on a few episodes in the past. Is you know there's there's companies out there, outdoor companies specifically, that you know sell a, a product or a service that is directly related to, you know, taking from the land, you know, like if you, if, if you're selling a rifle or a bow or a fishing rod or something like that, I mean, in, inherently those items are used to, to harvest animals or, or, or some type of wildlife. And the fact that there's companies out there like that, that aren't giving anything back to conservation, it just blows my mind. It, it, I, I just, yeah. I, I can't understand why, they haven't made the decision. And now don't get me wrong. I, I'm sure that there are some companies that while they're not 2% certified, they certainly are giving back to conservation in their own way. Sure. But I, there's certainly some out there that are not. And it, it, I just, I can't understand, you know, why they haven't because, you know, since becoming um, involved with 2%, you know, as a business and then with the podcast, I mean, I'm always surfing 2%'s website if I need something to see what it is, um, you know, is there, is there a brand or a company out there that offers, you know, what it is that I'm looking for that's 2% certified because, you know, I know that, you know, at the end of the day, they have the same, you know, interests and beliefs on conservation and giving back that I do. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's exactly the hope, you know, the hope is that we can create that mentality amongst a, a broad massive customer base. Right. And then that's, that's when the model becomes more powerful. And I think it'll become more easily um, or more easy for these types of businesses that aren't, aren't committed yet to to understand, but, but yeah, it, it, it's always kind of blowing my mind too. I mean, it, it simply, it seems black and white to me that, you know, and it's a long-term perspective, but you, you operate a company that manufactures any type of hunting or fishing equipment. And I don't want to undermine by any means the gun and ammunition companies because the excise taxes 
are, are incredibly important and a, and a huge dollar value that right, even absolutely. the 2% model will, will never come. So they're, they're by far uh, beyond their means doing their weight and pulling and doing their part and pulling their weight. But what I, my, the point I was going to make is, is it, it's so black and white that you sell uh, any hunting and fishing product, you need hunters and fishermen and you need animals uh, and wildlife to have long-term sustainability of your business model. Right. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. it's just that way. And, and, and this is a very long-term perspective, but if, hunt, if hunting and fishing go away or wildlife's not abundant, there's not going to be a demand for your product. So nope. just from that simple basis of supporting organizations, it just, it's, it just makes so much sense. And it's so hard to, to believe that there's some companies that that's not even on the radar and they don't do it. It's just a, it's just not only the right thing to do, but it's a smart business decision. I mean, you got the conservation organizations are the ones who are doing everything to protect our wildlife. They're the ones who are helping lobby for legislation in in Washington that is uh, pro hunting and fishing to expand access and to make sure that wildlife and um, animal populations are abundant. I mean, all these different layers that really are, are critical for the long-term success of of that business or brand that you're creating and running. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And if you think about some of the, you know, the likely customers of, of some of those brands, I mean, you know, I'm willing to bet that a vast majority of those customers are likely members of conservation organizations, whether it's local or, you know, national, um, you know, kind of level organizations that are out there that they're, you know, they're supporting the, whether it's a local chapter or a national um, chapter but then they're they're also purchasing you know equipment from people who are like yeah it's just I know what you guys do as as our customers but you know to 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 kind of put our money where our mouth is and support you know making sure that um, you know your grandkids can you know hunt the same animals or the same species that you can like yeah it's it, it's just like they're almost like taking it for granted right that. It's always been yeah. there, so it's always going to be there. And, you know, especially if, if anything over the last couple months um, with, you know, bills and things that have been passed has taught us anything, it's that it's not always going to be there. The, at least the yeah. opportunity is not always going to be there. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, it's, it's something that, that you can't, you, you got to step a little bit out of living in the moment and have, have some foresight on on the bigger picture. And, and luckily we have all these organizations that with or without 2% conservation, they're figuring out a way, a way to go do that for, for us. But um, yeah, I mean, this, this is a model to support them and a model to, to recognize those company companies that, that are doing that support. So, you know, hopefully we keep, we keep the train running. Jared keeps doing what he's doing. And, and the more businesses we get involved, uh, the more readily we can kind of drive that consumer rhetoric of that you just mentioned of, I, I'd rather purchase from, this company and this company, because I know that they're doing at least, you know, this level of commitment for, for things that are passionate, that I'm passionate about. Yeah. So you get over to Stone Glacier and kind of pass the reins of 2% off to Jared. I would imagine that, you know, because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you stepped into Stone Glacier, it was much like, um, the situation, uh, at Sitka where new company getting off the ground, just getting running. So, you know, what was, uh, or, I guess I'm assuming that one of the first kind of uh, items of business w- as at Stone Glacier was becoming 2% certified as well. Yeah. And actually Stone Glacier was already 2% certified. You know, I had uh, my friend Kurt, um, who was the founder of Stone Glacier. He was one of the first businesses I went to just because I knew he understood it and he would get the model. Um, and we had a relationship. So, you know, I think the, uh, I'm going to screw this up, but you know, Stone Glacier is maybe the third or I, I that, know, that sounds third, right. Business. Third sounds right. Yeah. Third, third, yeah. Certified, yeah. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. I mean, that, that had already existed. Um, but part of uh, stepping in was, was just continuing to implement this kind of culture and rhetoric within Stone Glacier and the brand amongst employees. And it, it already existed. Um, but, but this to leverage us, you know, how can we help? What, what else can we do? We're, we're a small business, but we have growth potential and we have access to a certain customer demographic um, and, and our own, you know, our own niche that we market to and, and how can we kind of leverage that model. Um, and I like to think we've done it well. There's always room for improvement, but um, 
but you know, it's, it's cool in that a company our size um, with the type of employees we have. And, and by that, I mean, uh, people who, who are passionate about hunting and fishing and outdoors and who understand conservation organizations that, that it's really fun just to be able to say, Hey, here's an opportunity to go remove fence or to go do a goat survey or to go, uh, capture mule deer, um, who wants to go and, and everybody's raising their hand. Like, yeah. I, I want to go do that. That's awesome. Let's do it. You know? And, um, you know, the opportunities are, are abundant and uh, it, it's just cool to have that culture and atmosphere built into our brand where, where sporting conservation is, is high on our priority list, uh, amongst the, the pillars of our business. Yeah. And I look at, um, you know, a company, well, it's, it's always funny to me, like, if you look at a company like Stone Glacier, who is a very well known and respected name in the outdoor industry, and I think a lot of people think it's like this, you know, this this really big company, right? But I mean, it's when you kind of if you peel back the the curtain a little bit, like I mean, I mean, what are you guys? Probably fifteen, twenty employees, maybe. I mean, maybe you're more, but I think that's kind of my no, yeah. Where I think yeah, as as of today, I think we have seventeen employees, which is. Uh which is a significant increase than, than this time last year, you know, it, we've been growing, but yeah, it's, it's, we're less than 20 employees. Yeah. And I mean, it's like I said that you guys have done uh, incredible things and kind of touching on your point of when you said, you know, the employees that we have, I look at a company like Stone Glacier and, you know, just with my interactions between, you know, yourself and Lyle and some of the, you know, your, your customer service reps that I've talked to when I've called over there, is you have a, a team of of outdoorsmen and outdoors women, hunters, anglers that happen to be good at business too, right? Like that's they're yeah. kind of like they're they're outdoorsmen first, and they're like they're they're businessmen or they're employees second, right? And it just with the business model and the space that you operate in, like the the two together just work really well, and um, I think that you can. Uh, you know, attribute a lot of the success and growth and, and everything that, that Stone Glacier has experienced over the last, you know, five or six years to, you know, the people that are, you know, inside the walls every day. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about the people. I mean, the brand is only, only as good as all the people behind the scenes. And yeah, we're, we're really fortunate to to have that. And I like, I like that. That, that kind of made me chuckle is that we got passion outdoorsmen who are also good at business. I think that's uh I think that's a good way of summing it up. And, yeah. and you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. So you guys have gone through, um, you're, you're going through, um, I don't know how much of a, a, you know, if I would call it change, but um, you guys are certainly expanding um, and, and growing and trying to keep up with the demand. Can you talk about that at all of kind of, you know, what's in store yeah. for the future? Yeah, absolutely. No, we, we are going through a, an interesting time period in, in the company's history. We, uh, recently uh, sold Stone Glacier to Vista Outdoor, um, and it's a very exciting opportunity for us. Um, and it's gonna, it's only gonna lead to more more opportunities to to do the types of things that that are important to us and that we feel are are um, needed for our business and our brand and, and all aspects of it. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know we, you know Kurt uh, Kurt started the company um, back in in two thousand and eleven. Uh, I believe, um, and and it's a very interesting and unique story. It's it's really a good, just a good um, American success story, if you will. And that you know he had a, a full time job and and liked to make things and was a passionate hunter and, and created a product that there was demand for and really ran the business as a side job, um, a, a garage business, if you will, as a hobby for for five years until uh, we partnered together and. And at that point, he had really laid the foundation of a strong brand um, with a great product line. And, and I really saw the opportunity to, to leverage my experience and learnings um, over my career at Sitka to, to take the brand to the next level, to expand into product categories and to, to grow upon what he had created. Um, and, and that's really what we've been executing on and, and where we've been going, what we've been doing. And, and uh, as as we all as businessmen and women know is, is that business evolves and that the needs and the demands evolved. And, and we're at a point now where we're taking the business to the next level um, requires a different level of, of support and resources and, um, and employees and, and all the puzzle pieces. Right. And, 
an opportunity to to do that with a company like Vista that has uh, all those puzzle pieces available, understands Stone Glacier's vision and brand, and doesn't want to come in and and change how we operate. Doesn't want to do anything different other than support what we've set out to do and, and help us achieve that goal is is a really exciting opportunity and time for us. So um, it definitely means some some transition and change uh, with with uh, ownership and you know, mostly back office stuff and how we, how we function, but sure. from the outside looking in and what we're going to produce and the products we're going to make and the team that's going to be there to do it, none of that's changing. And, and we're excited to have that horsepower behind us, if you will, that we didn't have previously to, to be more aggressive and to go after new, new product opportunities and new markets and, um, and really see what, what this brand can become. I mean, it, it's pretty cool to see success stories of brands across, all the different industries. There's so many, so many cool stories of them, and, and they're all intriguing. And Sick is a great example of one right? that went from uh, a concept and an idea that that people questioned and challenged to the leader and juggernaut in the space, right? Um, yeah, to and, being and widely are, accepted. Yeah, yeah, widely accepted. And those are those are really cool stories. And and we, you know, I feel fortunate, and we all feel fortunate that we're we're living that day to day, and and we're going to see what the future holds for Stone Glacier. But, but there's a lot of opportunity ahead, and it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's I know uh, it, it's super exciting, um, you know, as as a Stone Glacier customer uh, when something like that happens, because you know, and this is me speaking completely selfishly, but as a Midwest guy and you know, predominantly whitetail hunter, like I'm in the back of my mind, like, well maybe there's going to be some whitetail stuff in the future, right? Like I can, I can, I can get behind something like this, but even if not, you know, I mean, I've still found plenty of use for, you know, the stone glacier gear that I have in my own application. And I think that that's one of the cool things about, you know, a brand that started off, you know, kind of tailored or, or is tailored more to a Western style hunter is if people like the brand, if people like the products, they're going to figure out a way to fit it into their kit, figure it out, how they can still utilize it because they want to support that brand. And I think that's what Stone Glacier has done a, a really good job of as well is, is getting people who aren't Western hunters to still want to use their gear and to still, you know, rep the Ram. Right. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I appreciate that. I take that as a, as a, a large compliment because that's, you know, in our business, right. That's, that's what it's all about is, uh, is that, that consumer recognition, appreciation, and that branding, and that loyalty, and and that's what that's what takes uh, a business from from a, a business successful or or otherwise or whatever to to the next level of a of a cult following, if you will, to a you know not not that I'm trying to compare Stone Glacier to Nike, but that's you know that's what they've done, and other businesses have done in other industries where it's it's more than than just a, a product, but it's it's representative. A person wants to wear that logo on their hat or the product of whatever it is because uh they identify to a certain level with it and um and that's hard to achieve um that, that's a that's a hard thing to to create um but it's a very powerful thing and that's kind of what we're all here trying to do yeah and i think when uh facebook groups get created to like buy sell and trade like just specifically stone glacier stuff like like i feel like you've made it right like you've got you've got, <laughs> yeah. you've got a facebook group dedicated to just your products like hey that's it that's the pinnacle <laughs> I'll take I'll take that as a good benchmark of success down the path. I don't disagree with that. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm super excited to see, as I just mentioned, you know what um, what is kind of um, you know coming down the pike for uh, for Stone Glacier because you know just over the last you know two years with um, some more uh, you know technical wear that you guys have have really expanded on. Um, and then, you know, getting into the base layers and, and, you know, more like warm weather stuff that you guys just rolled out at the beginning of the year. Like this is all, you know, stuff that, um, that I think is very critical. It helps kind of round out, you know, the offering, uh, or your, you know, the, the offerings that you guys have and really plays well with, you know, the foundation pieces of, you know, your packs. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the category expansion stuff has been, been a lot of fun for us and, and, uh, you know, we're arguably still in the minds of many of the people, a backpack company, right? But, uh, but you know, being able to, to go and, and develop and design apparel pieces and tents and sleeping bags, um, gosh, it's, it's more fun and just cool more than anything. But, um, but there's, there's a need for it and there's an opportunity there. And, um, you know, we'll continue to try to make the best product we can and, 
and to meet that consumer demand. But, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun more than anything. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And being, you know, continue to be kind of the leaders, um, in, you know, the, the backpack, uh, world in, you know, new apparel, uh, and then leading the charge, you know, in the outdoor space, uh, as far as conservation, um, is concerned as well, I think is what really, um, separates Stone Glacier from a lot of other companies out there. And, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm super, you know, thankful for, you know, the support that Stone Glacier has, has given the podcast over the last year and a half. I know, um, uh, when we have reached out, uh, to Stone Glacier about doing, um, some partnership stuff early on, Lyle, like, I mean, he didn't even like check up. He was like, yep, absolutely. Like, let's support the podcast. It's supporting, you know, it's talking about conservation. It's talking about 2%, like we're, we're all in. And, you know, I think things like that just, you know, again, just speak to the entire, you know, culture, um, that you guys have built there at Stone Glacier. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we're, no, it's been cool. I appreciate you uh, you getting the word out there and, and uh, leveraging the podcast to to help promote the model. Because um, as I mentioned multiple times already in this conversation, there's there's so much opportunity for two percent, and it's it's uh, arguably undervalued and underappreciated, or maybe just more so unknown at this point. And and I really think that if we can continue to to drive that understanding and and leverage that business model and um, capitalize on that consumer behavior or desire to to support companies for conservation that there's really no stealing yeah so one more thing here jeff before i let you get out of here i know it's we're recording on a friday it's uh you know we got the weekend ahead of us here but as we're obviously in the early phases of 2022 but do you have uh kind of any big hunts or trips or, or anything like that planned for for later in the year that you're uh you know excited about or looking forward to Huh. Uh, I'm sure I'll find something to do, but sadly, no. <laughs> I, have, I don't have uh, I don't have any big trips on the books right now. Um, we're really fortunate living in Montana that that the, the opportunities are, are abundant for us. I mean, we're we're spoiled here. I don't want to don't want to spread the word too widely, but we have one of the best uh, things going from a resident hunting opportunity to be able to hunt so many different species so so readily over the counter for, for such a long period of time. Yeah. Um I, I like to uh try to plan a, a trip to Alaska here and there every few years if I can. Uh that's that's always a good adventure and trying to get out of state to hunt to hunt something every every year or so. But but as of now I've been so darn busy with, with the stuff with uh Stone Glacier and work and you know, I got two young kids. I, I don't have any anything to report back on the books right now badly but i'll figure something out yeah and that's all right too because when i, I that's kind of like always like the, the question i wrap things up with because i'm always curious you know basically I, i'm just asking out of envy with if someone has like a really cool trip <laughs> plan that i can live you know kind of from the distance you know vicariously through them but a lot of times people are like oh i'm gonna head out you know if i'm talking to someone from the east or the midwest you know oh, i'm gonna head out to montana wyoming and like that's that's their big trip right and you know rightfully so yeah. anyone that's that's heading west you know, from, from this, this part of the country, but yeah, to, yeah. I mean, my big trip or, or someone else's big trip is like, yeah, that's, that's my season, right? Like that, that's just how yeah, I hunt. So yeah, that's, I, a, that's a week, that's a weekend day of going hunting for us. No, we're, we're pretty fortunate and spoiled out here. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I won't, I don't want to, I don't want to squash over young listeners dreams though, but it, it's a funny thing that I've talked about a lot with my friends in the industry and, uh, and those amongst that are, that, that know, but if, if you love to hunt and fish, don't, don't get a job in the hunting and fishing industry. That, that'd be my one piece of advice and a takeaway because your busiest time of the year is hunting season. <laughs> yeah. It's also the hardest time for me to try to get uh, guests on the podcast that work for outdoor industries too. Is <laughs> like everyone's just, whether people are just like shorthanded, like companies are shorthanded because people, you know, like they do everywhere. They save their vacation time for hunting season. Right. right. <laughs> and, you know, I can't do this. Like we're just, you know, we're slammed, we're short staffed. It's, you know, and everyone's trying to do yeah. all their last minute ordering to get gear. So yeah, I, that's a good piece of advice. It's, I'd it's imagine. A, it, it, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's uh it's great to work in this industry for all the obvious reasons, but it definitely makes it challenging to, to, uh, to carve time out that time of the year. But, but, uh, but I think it's worth the trade off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for, for taking some time today, man. I really uh, enjoyed talking to you and hearing your story and, you know, getting a better understanding of, you know, really, uh, I guess, kind of the origin story of 2% and, and how that's continued to, to change and, and, you know, what the future looks like for Stone Glacier as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We'll take care and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, sounds good, Marcus. Take it easy, man. All right. All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you again to Jeff for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Wild Rivers Coffee and Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. Uh, Please be sure to go out and support the companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, And if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands, including Stone Glacier, that that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only uh, positive conservation driven posts uh, in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Be sure to check out the averageconservationist.com. Check out all the um, previous podcast episodes and pick up some merchandise uh, to help support conservation as well. So, as always, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.